Welcome to the East Career Podcast, brought to you from the East Careers and Trauma Committee. I am Jamie Coleman from Indiana University. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. Don Cotter here with us to discuss academic and non-academic careers. Are they really apples and oranges? Dr. Cotter is the Trauma Program Medical Director at the Mary Washington Hospital Trauma Center in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Previously, Dr. Cotter was a professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania for 18 years and was vice chair of the Division of Trauma. Dr. Cotter has a long history with our organization and has been an active member of EAST since 1988. Dr. Cotter, as someone who has held leadership positions in both the academic and non-academic worlds, you clearly have a unique perspective on this discussion, and we thank you for sitting down with us today. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. When looking at the EAST website, it seems that the majority of job positions available and the need for trauma surgeons is greatest at non-academic community hospitals. However, for many of us, career advice throughout our training is given assuming that we will be having academic careers. Starting with your current work situation, what do you see as the advantages of a career outside of an academic institution? Well, I think the main advantage that uh, comes to mind is that you actually uh, get to be a surgeon. And I'm not saying that in a pejorative way uh, against the academic world, which I truly, truly loved and, and still do. But the m- main differences in the two paradigms is that uh, in a small or smaller uh, level two type uh, community-based program, you may not have residents and, and frequently don't. And you basically meet the patient, diagnose the patient, bring them to the operating room, and operate on them, take care of them postoperatively, meet their family, and uh, get to do all the things that we were uh, born and bred to do when we were in uh, surgical residency. And I think that's really uh, the main uh, the main difference. Uh, se- secondary differences uh, uh, include being able to have a collegial relationship with your peers that is um, that's quite a bit different than the uh, traditional uh, academic model, in a good way. And when you say collegial relationship with your peers, you mean within your own specialty or outside specialties as well? Well, I would I would say both. You know, the, the traditional uh, academic uh, model of, of collegial relationships is often rank to rank. For example, if you're a new assistant professor of surgery and you have an issue with uh, somebody in orthopedics who happens to be a professor of orthopedics, uh, you take your life in your hands and your, possibly your career if you call that person uh, directly or call them out in public or uh, you know, really across the lines of, of a very rigid rank type system. Uh, in a non-academic world, people generally are on the same playing field. We're all practitioners together. There aren't the uh, cavalcade of, of resident and medical students and, and flappers and hangers-on that surround uh, the academic uh, model. Uh, so you can cut to the chase and pick up the phone and call your orthopedic colleague and say, you know, John, when can we fix this fellow's femur because we need to get him out of the hospital. In the academic world, you 
are liable to uh, field some criticism if you make that call first. You need to talk to your fellow who will talk to his chief, who will talk to the three and the two <laughs> and the one, and then down there in the primordial soup, the medical students will get involved, and then it goes up the other uh, part of this U up to the attending, and a couple of days later you might get an answer that makes absolutely no sense. And then you pick up the phone and call your colleague and, and sort it all out. So I think, you know, care can be uh, much more efficient and and some of the lines are, are of, of rigid uh, academia are, are blurred. Now, clearly the, the uh, private practice world isn't all sweetness and light, and there are egos and, and politics involved there. But uh, at least the, the uh, trappings of academia are shed, and you can really uh, – it's much more, more easy to, to cut to the chase. You don't always get the decision you want, but at least you get a decision uh, fairly quickly. What are some common misconceptions you have found people to have about careers outside of a university? Well, one of the uh, – let me – I'll flip that question around first and and uh, talk about uh, misconceptions during training, uh, and, uh, and, and here's where it is. You know, when I was a, a professor at Penn, we insisted, and I, I still believe they uh, they do this, that our fellows go out to level two trauma centers as part of the training so they can see what it really uh, is like to be in the trenches with uh, a relatively low level of, of, of medical support, at least to the extent you have in academia. And the tendency in academics is to get that call on a Friday night and the uh, the rocket from the uh, level two or the community hospital coming in and your first comment is, oh, those guys are idiots. You know, they're lazy. They don't know what they're doing, and they're going to dump the patient onto the academic center. Well, when you're out there in the community, what you forget is that you maybe a year or two beforehand were that resident or that fellow taking care of that patient in the in the uh, level one center, and you thought you were pretty pretty top notch. And nothing really happens to you except that your clinical skills get better when you get out in the community. So it's it's a little difficult to to shed those misconceptions that people in the community don't have the clinical skills uh, or the intellectual aptitude uh, to be good surgeons and to be uh, good physicians. Uh, so that is uh, that's one of the misconceptions that once you get out of academic training, you become uh, a near cretin and and lazy to boot, and it's just not fair to to look at those colleagues uh, in that way. You really have no idea as a young uh, resident or fellow what it's like at two in the morning to be by yourself and see two people with a with gunshot wounds and another person run over by a cow, all coming at the same time, and there's nobody there to take care of the patients but you and your perspective quickly, quickly changes. And uh, then you see the role of the academician come in and the quaternary center where uh, they very much should be in the role of helping out their colleagues who are at smaller centers. What are some career challenges that are unique to people in a non-academic institution? Well, I think the probably the most difficult thing to do is to maintain your uh, 
uh, to, to, to maintain a contemporary practice. And, and by that I mean to make sure you're doing your reading and reading your journals and reading uh, critically. And the other issue that comes to the fore is that uh, the morbidity and mortality conference process that is so much a part of surgical training is not so much a part of private practice. Uh, in fact, uh, if you try to stand up and, and critique your colleagues the way uh, it's done in an academic setting where you have your chairman who's directing that and, and to some degree criticizing but also to some degree protecting, uh, if you try that uh, approach in a private practice setting, you find your referrals and your uh, dry up and your reputation drops away. So that ability to be critical of yourself and critical of others and learn in doing so is difficult to come by in a, in a private practice world. People want to be polite uh, to the extreme, and since they're not required to be uh, introspective, um, as they are, as you are in an academic setting, uh, I think people tend not uh, to not to do that because it's uncomfortable. And the other issue is that you don't have residents pushing you all the time, which is a, and that's a very good thing. When you're teaching, you have to be contemporary, uh, unless you, uh, otherwise you're not going to be an effective uh, teacher. So it, it's a little difficult to keep up with the academic side and. It's a little more difficult to get to meetings because there are financial issues involved when you are outside of your level of practice. Uh, you're not, uh, your income drops off for that week. Uh, you just simply can't afford to go to the meetings that you might be able to afford to go to if you're in academics. So I think those two issues are uh, ones that, uh, that we struggle with. And do you think it is possible to stay involved in research in a community hospital setting? And what advice would you give on how best to accomplish this? It is it is difficult. I have to uh, be honest with you. I, I think in in a setting that doesn't have uh, a residency program, the generally the, the hospitals uh, don't have a lot of support for uh, doing research. It costs a lot of money to have statisticians and and uh, people who can run a grant or administer a grant or actually do the research. And if you're in a busy private practice, to try to, to slog through that yourself is, is difficult and it takes away a lot of clinical time. I, I think the easiest answer is to try to align yourself in your practice with a uh, a program or a hospital or a situation where research is part of the hospital's mission or uh, part of the educational mission of the institution. There are many smaller or community hospitals that have surgical residencies where <clears throat> where research uh, funding is, is more available and the, and the research infrastructure may already be there. The other way to do it potentially is to tap into some other uh, research efforts. For example, the oncologists seem to be, always seem to be doing something in terms of clinical trials, and sometimes you can piggyback onto that sort of thing. But honestly, I think it's a little difficult. Uh, research, even in an academic center, takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to do quality, uh, to do quality work. And the minions that we surround ourselves with in academia are uh, 
very helpful in doing that. You always have an eager medical student or undergraduate who's looking to buff up their CV, and and you can pull those people in at fairly low cost to uh, to help you uh, accomplish that. Even in terms of grant writing, where the the grant application process is very very onerous and very competitive. Uh, when I was in my academic uh, setting, we had grant writers and statisticians and people who were expert just at that. And most um, for-profit or even non-for-profit community centers don't have those resources to bear. So I think proper planning will will help with that. If you try to put yourself in a in a job where those resources are there and promised, then I think you're likely to be more uh, successful. And as we all know, mentorship in and out of the operating room is extremely important, especially for young surgeons. Do you think mentorship opportunities are the same in and out of an academic career? And what advice do you have for a surgeon who can't seem to find a mentor within their institution? Is it possible to have a mentor at a hospital other than your own? And how could someone go about finding this? Well, that's that's tough. I, th- I think um, mentorship is... Clearly, most available in an academic setting. That's what we're supposed to be doing. There is training uh, future surgeons. Um, I would offer this advice: <clears throat> if you can, uh, as you're leaving practice, if you decide to go into a, a non-academic setting, try to choose a setting where you have colleagues that you think you can trust and who have a similar uh, practice style, because. <clears throat> Excuse me. That will allow you to explore your own surgical uh, limits and not feel uh, threatened uh, or bad when you uh, call them in the middle of the night or, the, or, for that matter, in the middle of the afternoon for advice or for help. Uh, my own personal philosophy is that the more brains you can put on a difficult problem, the better off the patient is going to be. <clears throat> and that is sometimes difficult to find. Uh, if you're in solo practice, the, you can be viewed as a, a whiner or weak by your colleagues if you're always asking for help and they're not in your practice. So if you choose a practice setting where people philosophically are committed to helping each other, uh, then I think that uh, the group can mentor you uh, well if they pick the right people. An individual mentor is a little different. Remember that in a private world, uh, the prime driver of of most people is going to be uh, income generation, and time taken away from that uh, impacts people's lifestyle. So I think it's a little tough to find a mentor outside. I think the the things that East is doing, for example, uh, even uh, this uh, conversation we're having, is very very helpful because. Uh, this allows uh, – it opens up a, a whole array of people with some expertise uh, to a younger generation. And I think most of the members, at least uh, the senior members who are, of course, not allowed to hold office, <laughs> thankfully, for the, for the organization, can offer these uh, witty insights like I am and uh, are very, very excited about the opportunity to mentor our, our younger colleagues. Uh, I think that is probably the way to go. Uh, it's a little difficult to call somebody you don't know at two in the morning when you're uh, when you're concerned about what the right thing to do is. 
Uh, but in terms of uh, greater philosophy and direction, I think uh, what East is doing is maybe it will be the answer for people in a non-academic world. After 18 years at the University of Pennsylvania, could you share with us what prompted you to make the move to Fredericksburg? And also, what advice would you give to folks contemplating a similar move? Well, what uh, really drove me to leave the university was were family issues. And uh, people who, who know me best uh, very much know my uh, philosophy about that. And, and uh, I think family and uh, is the most important part of, of one's life. And uh, that was a decision I made that was uh, difficult uh, and personal, and it was the right uh, and it was the right decision. I don't really have any regrets uh, uh, about that. And the advice I'd give in general is, before you take a position uh, or b- decide to leave, really take a, a big, deep look inside to see what your motivations are and what's really important. If um, there are people who look at careers in academia as as the most important uh, part of their life, and I have great respect for those individuals. It's just not um, it's just not my view of the world, and my career and job has to fit in with my uh, family and personal issues. And uh, if it doesn't, then I have to find a, a work environment that uh, more uh, carefully lines up with the things that I find as the most important things in my in my life. And so that's why I left. And, uh, you know, there are things about academics uh, that I miss uh, greatly, the, the ability to, to teach my young colleagues on, <clears throat> excuse me, on a daily basis and to be pushed uh, academically to engage in some of the research. But um, I'm, I've met the other needs that are, that are much more important to me, and uh and I've made a very good career uh really a second career in a, in a different way in in a uh in a less academic uh environment but that being said I'm, I still maintain my uh uh pseudo academic life with uh east and I attend uh AAST and west and and all the meetings I can try to get to 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 visit with my colleagues and and uh trade ideas and, and philosophies and see what other people are doing. Uh, and I think that is uh, very important. But it is uh, when I av- advised my fellows about jobs that they are looking for, I most carefully advised them to look at what is the most important thing in their in their life. And this impacted the, ge- the geography of their uh, job search and the character of the jobs that they were uh, looking to uh, examine. And if the most important part was getting the best academic job, then they were going to have to sacrifice uh, geographic and, and personal and family issues. And that's perfectly fine. I think that's what many what people should do if that's the most important thing. And but it's important to maintain a connection with your with your priorities and not let other people's uh, advice uh, who have a different agenda color, color you too much. Switching gears a little bit, from a business point of view, it seems that contract negotiations and financial reimbursement structures differ greatly between non-academic and academic positions. 
For fellows currently looking for jobs after graduation or attendings looking to make the switch, what kinds of questions should they be asking specifically for hospital-based or non-academic positions? Well, I think the uh, uh, particularly if you are looking to be in a, a group-type environment that's similar to academic but not academic, for example, practicing acute care surgery in a, a world that, that is unacademic, I think it's important not to be uh, trapped into an RVU-based uh, system. The hospitals very much want to be able to see that you're doing, <coughs> excuse me, that you're doing good work, and I think they're willing to pay reasonable salaries in doing so. But they're always looking for ways to measure uh, that you're doing uh, enough work, and it's an argument that that uh, I saw coming uh, in academics, and we dealt with it there as well. But certainly in a private practice world, uh, we are also. We have managed to stave off the uh, uh, the RVU um, model and uh, have convinced people, and I think rightly so, that you can't just pay people when work is done, just like you can't just pay firemen when there is a fire to fight. You have to pay for readiness. And convincing a hospital administration that you need to pay a surgeon's salary, which is considerably higher than, <clears throat> excuse me, than a medical person's salary, to be ready and yet not to provide a, a billable service is is a struggle. And many hospitals decide that they don't want to uh, continue with that and either eliminate programs or try to cut salaries. It's, it's a struggle that that we that we fight on a daily basis with contract negotiations and and contract philosophies. But if you can get into a situation where uh, you can be in a practice where people are salaried and you're not fighting for the RVU, then I think it makes your practice uh, style uh, easier and more comfortable. I'll give you an example. Uh, if I'm up all night long, we do 24-hour shifts here, and at uh, 2 in the morning I admit somebody with uh, acute biliary colic who needs an operation uh, within 8 to 10 hours, um, I don't stay the next day to do that operation because my salary isn't based on that. If it was, I might do an operation when I'm dead tired, which is not good for me or the patient. In my current setting, uh, I turn that patient's care over to one of my colleagues who's there the next day, and they do the surgery because the surgery needs to be done, not because they are being compensated. And we all share our patients, and uh, it allows us to spend uh, quality time with our families and, and have some rest and still provide good care and we share the RVUs as a practice. Now, I don't think we make as much money as we might in a pure private practice model where you, quote, eat what you kill, but I think you have to make enough to be comfortable and you can't be greedy and you have to balance your lifestyle uh, against, uh, against your salary. Taking the 30,000-foot view, what is the main message or piece of advice that you would like to give our audience today about the differences, advantages, and disadvantages between careers in academic and non-academic settings? I think the most important viewpoint is to understand that one path is no better than the other. They're just different. And one needs to find those aspects of being a surgeon that are personally most important 
and then balance them against financial needs, family commitments, and geography, and realize that you know the perfect job probably doesn't exist. It's our holy grail, and you you just have to realize that that uh, what you choose is is should be the most important thing in your life and has to balance all those issues. And when you choose it, it doesn't have to be the end of the road. Your situation can change, and then you should change your work situation as need be and make sure that you stay true to your commitments to yourself and your family. Well, on behalf of the East Careers and Trauma Committee, I would like to thank you, Dr. Cotter, for taking time to speak with us today. I am Jamie Coleman, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the East website at www.east.org for more East Career podcasts and other valuable information. Um, do you think it's possible, Don, if somebody starts off in a more community-based practice and maybe it wasn't the right fit for them, as you know, you said, you need to figure out what your fit is, what do you think about coming back into an academic arena? Do you think it's possible? Do you think it's impossible? I think it's absolutely possible. I think that uh, you have to choose the correct academic setting. And, for, for example, I mean, what I know best is my experience at Penn. It is a very traditional uh, academic model. And if you're in the clinician educator track and you don't publish your 40 papers, <clears throat> excuse me, in the first eight to nine years, you're not going to be promotable. Well, that's that's pretty rigid. And even Penn is now having an academic clinician track that is looking to reward people for their clinical abilities and their ability to teach in a clinical setting. But there are a hundred and some odd or more than that residencies in this in this country and you know that sort of uh you you can be associated with the university or an academic uh program and not have those pressures of of the um i guess the top tier or top echelon programs and i say that with uh, tongue in cheek because they're only top tier and top echelon if they match up with your uh practice model that you want to practice so there are many uh, programs that that are not as uh, not research driven or not research based that you can that you can be involved with, and I have I know personally several colleagues who've gone from a private practice model right back into an academic uh, situation that is not as rigorous as uh, as a pen, but is uh, still very satisfying and doesn't rely upon people to publish or perish, but they're looking for good clinicians who are good teachers. And uh, I, th I think it's possible to make that switch. Do you think our training programs now, I mean, having seen kind of the private practice model, do you think our training programs are training people that can be the only person in the ED, that can truly operate alone without a second partner, a PA that can assist them, et cetera? Uh, absolutely. The the programs that that really it's funny to say this. I mean, uh, again, uh, the the Penn programs is is there philosophically at least when I was there for years. It may have changed now with with a different chairman. They were not they're not training general surgeons. They're training surgeons who want to be subspecialists and super specialists, and they were very open about that. The vast majority of people coming from those programs were destined to fellowship. And if they didn't get their fellowships, they were looked as looked upon 
uh, as not being as successful as the ones who did attain a fellowship. Even if they weren't looking for a fellowship, they went into, into a private practice or general surgery, it was almost a waste of the uh, of the residency slot because the mission of that residency was to train the future academic leaders in America. There are many programs that don't have that as a mission, that their their mission is to train good community-based general surgeons. And, and those are the programs that don't have fellowships, uh, that don't have a lot of ancillary people so that their residents have a lot of vascular training and have good cardiac training and have thoracic training because there are no other residents or fellows to to train. And I very much believe that that if you choose the right residency, you'll get the right training for what you want to do. The problem is sometimes you don't really know as well as you might need to know when you make those decisions. And that goes all the way down to medical school. There are some medical schools that are looking to train MD-PhDs and, and the future brainiacs of, of American medicine, and there are some medical schools that are looking philosophically to train primary care providers. And, you know, if you don't pick the right school, your opportunities to pick the right residency are are limited. And right doesn't always mean the best academic or the best, well, the best, you know, research reputation. It just means what's right for what you want to do in the future. So with that, um, the acute care surgery paradigm, you know, there's been a lot of debate whether that's easier, harder, different to practice in um, in either an academic or a community setting. What are your thoughts? Well, we're doing it here at Mary Washington, but we're doing it with six mid-level providers. So we have uh, five PAs and one nurse practitioner, and they're usually two here each day and one on every night with us, and they function at the level of probably a second-year resident, so they're, they can put central lines in and chest tubes and A-lines and take care of patients in the ICU uh, you know, with some supervision and help us resuscitate. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I think, I think you can do it, but you have to have help. If I was, uh, and in a, a program like where I am, uh, what keeps us most busy at night is the general surgery, where we may do a couple of appies and a bowel obstruction and a perforated colon and have two blunt trauma patients in an evening. And, if, and then we take care of our own surgical ICU patients and those of our colleagues. If we were by ourselves, we would really, uh, we would struggle. And I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be possible. I think we would transfer a lot more people. And, and uh, it, while it already is clinically stressful, it would be, it would be impossible to be in three places at once. Uh, with one body. So I think mid-levels are um, maybe the answer in a uh, community-based program. And the other advantage in this setting of a mid-level provider is that they are in our practice because they want to be in our practice and they want to take care of the patients. Uh, as we know, in, in many residents who rotate on a trauma service, for example, don't want to be there. And they're doing it because this is part of their requirement because they're, they're going to orthopedics or they're going to ENT or they're going into some other non-surgical thing or they're going into some sort of specialty. And uh, being on a trauma service is like a poke in the eye for, for, for some people because of the patients can be difficult and so forth. But, um, and then you have to train the residents every month because they switch. Uh, and so they're not as familiar with protocols and, and the like. But mid-levels 
really in this sort of uh, setting work out very well. And, I, and while they are expensive, uh, they're not as expensive as uh, attendings. And they really extend, they do what they're supposed to do. They're physicians and extenders, and they extend our ability to care for patients uh, quite well. Terrific. I, I, again, so very thankful um, for you taking time out of your, your busy day <laughs> to spend time talking to us. I think that um, we we have been so deliriously happy with um, how some of these have turned out. And I, I it's an interesting, I think, to all of us, and Jamie, you can comment, so many of the comments that you've made, Dave Feliciano have made, LD Brit, et cetera, everybody that we've talked to, is like, find what, you know, makes you tick and make sure that it fits you. And it's it's amazing to hear that as an echo through all of the conversations we've had with folks like yourself. Well, thank you. It's important. I think that, I think it's a change, a sea change in surgical philosophy. I really do. I think the uh, the era of the uh, surgeon who is on call, you know, twenty four seven three sixty five is is coming to a close. I don't think our our lifestyles <clears throat> and our families or our health uh, really can tolerate it any longer. So, would you change anything about what you've done? Uh, well. I think before I would have come to Fredericksburg, I would have made sure there's good Chinese food. <laughs> because we are really missing a good Chinese restaurant in Fredericksburg. <laughs> well, maybe that can be your third career. You can open one. <laughs> Don't even even go there. No, um, you know, kidding aside, I, I've had a wonderful career. I really do. I'm so fortunate. I've had, I had a great mentor in Bill Schwab who, you know, really did everything he could to to advance my career, and I'm eternally grateful uh, to him for the opportunities. And um, <clears throat> I, w- I was able to teach. I was able to teach residents and fellows and medical students and then take that clinical knowledge and, and bring it to the community here. And so I think I've had really lived in the best of, uh, of both worlds, and I've had a really unique opportunity. So... Um, it's a hard life. I have three children, none of whom are interested in medicine at all, and they think I work too hard. So, uh, and, and maybe that's true, but uh, um, I think it's been a, uh, a great career. And that being said, I'm turning 60 in a couple of weeks and looking forward to retiring <laughs> as soon as I can. You know, probably another two or three years, and I'll go out and make stained glass windows for a hobby. But and cook Chinese food. And cook anything I can get my hands on. <laughs> Thank you, thank you thank again. Thank you again. Jamie, Christine, any last words? No, thank you so much. This was perfect. This is exactly what we were.